When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hi, I'm Stephen Fitch, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, I do, as we get started, have to give an assist to 
Mr. Anthony DeLonges. And I'll tell the story in a second, but he has hooked me up with another guest. This man has been around the weapons game, martial arts, and all kinds of stuff. We'll get into it. Since about 1988, last I heard, which is scary, but he's got a pretty cool school up in San Jose area, which we'll also get into. But Mr. Stephen Fick, sir, how are you? I am doing great. Great to be here with you. Great. I appreciate that. So before we get into everything, I will finish that story. And I happened to be on Rancho Indado at the time uh, during my visit to L.A. recently and happened to be sitting in or not sitting, but in Anthony's kitchen when he says, give me one second. Whips out, the, whips out the phone, and it's Mr. Fick here. And he, they were talking from Anthony gave great recommendations, which I think he may have been day drinking, even though he was joking that I don't day drink. No, I love you, buddy. But, you know, I, I know I'll get a phone call or a text about that when he hears that. But uh, you were at the school, and if we can tell this story, it's okay. If not, I can always clip it out. But you were at the school working with a Make-A-Wish kid who was working or playing as a pirate. So do you want to uh, tell from your end the phone call? One of the things that I've always wanted to do is work with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I got the opportunity to work with them a young man named james is uh was being sent to florida for a big pirate convention that's i believe it happened last weekend it's either last weekend or this weekend and we were i could pause you right there for a second just so we can backtrack for the time we are talking as it is taping we're taping this on the 13th but this story we're talking about happened maybe about three or a month no, ago. Yes, so at this point, about the call. Yes. So anyway, I'm, I'm you you wanted to work with Make a Wish, and this kid was going to a pirate thing. So this young man was going to a pirate event, and I am here in my school, dressed up in pirate duds, with six other volunteers who are all dressed like different types of pirates. A young man sitting on a cannon throwing beanbag cannonballs when I get a call from Anthony saying, hey, I got a guy you've got to talk to. Would you be okay with that? Yes, I would. And so that's how we had our introduction. I was watching a boy throw cannonballs at a ship. Yes. And because this conversation ain't fully about Anthony, but I'll say this, and I think you, I don't know how long you've known him, but he's a guy who wouldn't give a stamp of approval unless he really believed it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I've known him since the early 2000s, and he really is a professional. Yeah. So, but love you, buddy, and can't wait to come back out to the ranch sooner rather than later which 
looks like might work on my end, but that's a whole nother conversation for a different time. So you have this school, the Devon Rich European Martial Arts School. You opened the school in 2000, and we're going to intermix. It's very low-key here. Uh, I might even break this out. Got a little bottle of whiskey. Because uh, I keep things loose. Yes, and this was actually going to be cracked open for Anthony's birthday, but hence he don't day drink, but that's a whole other conversation. We'll have to wait until we get back to the ranch here. So you open a school in 2000, but... I mentioned in the introduction that you've been around the game for several years, I'll say. Yes. So since you got your first introduction in 88 at a uh, Renaissance fair, if I heard that correctly, because we know everything on the internet is true, but you got (laughs) into the game in 89. So, Right. So I went to a Renaissance fair in 88. My dad found a flyer for a Renaissance fair in San Luis Obispo told me about it and I was a total nerd reading D&D books, Dragonlance books and then my dad found this and I realized that I could wear a sword so I was all hyped up for that and uh, talked my way into the into the Renaissance Fair, made a deal with a food booth vendor I guarded his booth and he fed me all weekend it was a fantastic uh agreement on my side anyways what was the food what was the style of food do you remember they oh, i don't that was 30 plus years ago but it, i want to say they it was i don't think it was turkey legs but it they had turkey legs there okay so not the disney turkey legs correct no big old turkey legs for walking you see people at renaissance fairs walking around munching on turkey legs Beautiful. Uh, I did that, but then the next year I was invited into a fight. They put me in a suit of armor that didn't fit me, (laughs) gave me a sword that was too heavy for me. My friend went into the fight first. And after he got out of the fight, the only instructions I got were, they're going to try to back you up. Don't let them. I figure if I'm not going backwards, I must be going forwards. So I screamed and ran at him. He stepped to the side and batted me in the back of the head with his hand. <laughs> I did that three times. He never once used his sword on me. But at that point, I was hooked and wanted to know how to make this work. And so, that got me started. So with that being said, what was the discipline that you, because there's like martial arts which i would say work with swords and stuff and you work with a couple different disciplines is a discipline you work with long swords rapers side swords viking weapons and others at your school but what was the first discipline that you took to when you started there in 89 that was all almost all long sword Longsword in full armor. And we didn't have access to good swords like we do now. So we had to make our own swords. And they were made out of leaf springs. And I'm a, I like good stuff. So I had a leaf spring from a Cadillac. 
and my sword weighed 10 pounds. It was stupid heavy, but it got me stronger and it made me a better fighter moving that thing around. Absolutely. And uh, if I remember hearing this correct, because like I said earlier, everything on the internet is true. But it's what my kid always said. <laughs> but uh, you got the name for the school from the same Renaissance fair, correct? Right. The group that I was a member of. Uh, when you go to Renaissance fairs and you're a part of a group, you get a. I've never been to one, so that's why I'm. The character name that I was given was Davenridge, just Davenridge. My first name is Stephen, so. I was known as Stephen Davenridge, and I really just dug the way that that name sounded, which is longer and so I think sounds better than thick. So I really dug it. And I, I told the guy that my guild leader, I said, I, I like this name. I'm going to make this name famous. And when I started the school, I had just finished reading The Three Musketeers again and i was hyped on alexander dumas and i wanted a name as close to dumas as i could get so i chose davenrich european martial arts school so i could have the acronym dumas like dumas mm -hmm. and that's totally where it came from sense. totally makes sense but prior to this school i want to dig into it a little bit you spent 11 years, and I know some of this may have crossed over into when you opened a school in 2000, but you spent 11 years touring and participating over 1,900 fights. And, right. But also, you spent six months in the UK training with lighter weapons, which is some of the styles and weapons that you teach at the school, such as cutting and thrusting of the sword and dagger and, you know, the, all the different techniques. So with the evolution and training and learning different disciplines, what has become your favorite? Uh, I think one of my favorites is actually tomahawk and knife. And what because is that? So if you think of pirate fighting, you've got a cutlass, a short pirate sword, or you can fight with a knife and a tomahawk. And uh, a tomahawk is a small handheld axe. It was also used on board ship. It called a tomahawk or a boarding axe. And when I would, when we fight with the tomahawk and knife, it allows us to... I get in close and I let my inner fighter out. Whereas when I'm doing long sword or rapier or sword and shield, the length of the weapons keep us separated. But tomahawk and knife lets me get up close and personal and touch someone. And with that being said, the over 1900 fights and the different tournaments and things you've participated in. You, from what I understand, and I believe you told me this in one of our first 
email interactions because we connected via text at first when I was coming down the mountain of Rancho. And you have been a part of battle reenactments in Europe and fighting at castles and stuff, done different styles. So how would you say from that perspective, whether it be at castles or doing reenactments in Europe differ from here in the States because people do reenactments of like civil war and different things that are known to here in the States. So what do you notice about, or what would you say is different about the European style and such? The primary difference is between the reenactments in Europe and the reenactments here is our healthcare system. Because of the... Is this the nose story I've heard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so when you're out there on the field, because they have universal health care, they get away with a lot more. <laughs> Whereas here, we don't. Not only it, do we have less health care, the insurance companies are litigious and so there's so many things that we can't do here. When there are reenactments done here, like the Civil War reenactments, they're almost always done at a great distance by musket or cannon. You do have some, some people get in close and do some clanging of swords, but very little. Over there, you get up close and you're in the lines and you're fighting nose to nose with people with all sorts of different weapons. I was in one fight in 2015 in France, fighting three people in front of me, because I was in line. And as I was getting ready to hit somebody in the head, this spear came out of the side. And just as I lifted my arm, right under the armpit. Like, fair enough, that would kill me if that was a sharp sword. So I'm gonna lay down now. Mm -hmm. We can't do those kinds of things here. So, with that being said, and that is totally correct with the whole under the arm there, it would have killed you if it was, if it were real per se, and, you know, but logistically. But to finish off the nose story, is this, mm -hmm. if I remember this correctly, you had a... Would you like to talk? Yeah, if you want to, go ahead, it'll yeah. come better from you to fill me in with the helmet so and the I was in a battle reenactment called Tewksbury, which is a War of the Roses battle in a town called Tewksbury, about just north of London. And it's a weekend event, Saturday, Sunday. On Saturday, the group that I was with, we fought hard. And our whole side, it was uh, Lancastrians versus Yorkists. And I was on the Yorkist side, the winning side, historically. And we fought hard. And we actually pushed the Lancastrian side back and beat them sooner than we were supposed to. Because we know what the outcome is supposed to be, but from the beginning to the end is just us fighting. And so the next day they were out to get us. And I'm fighting somebody, and all of a sudden, one of the rules there is you're not supposed to grapple and go to the ground because. Bad things happen when you have 2,000 people 
on the ground and arrows are flying in. So I'm fighting this guy and all of a sudden four people jump me and I just get jumped by four people. I'm in full armor. I've got a helmet on my head. As I get hit from behind, I'm falling forward. My helmet slides forward. I drive, it drives me into the ground and the rim of the helmet drives into my nose and cuts my nose open. They finally, when they're done hitting me and kicking me while I'm on the ground, they go off into the fight. I get up, wipe blood off my face, put my helmet back on and go back into the fight. When the day is over, I'm walking off the field. I've got, you know, blood streaked across the face. And my wife sees me and says, you need stitches. So I don't need stitches. It's just, no, it's fine. <laughs> you need stitches. I don't need stitches. This will heal up. I mean, there's nothing they can do. You need stitches. Fine, I'll go. So I walk over to the medic's tent, and there's a nurse sitting behind the table. And I said, my wife says I need stitches. Can the doctor look at it? She says, sure. Doctor's not here yet. He'll be in in a minute. Just wait. So I sit down and wait. I'm there five, ten minutes, and all of a sudden this guy walks in, sword in one hand, helmet in the other hand. She, The nurse looks up and says, oh, the doctor's here. And I look at the guy with the sword. I'm like, he makes his own clients. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love this. So, now, was he one of the guys you were in the scuffle with earlier, or was he somewhere else amongst this? He was uh, somewhere else. He just... He was out spending all day hitting people with swords and then comes back and puts them back together. Alrighty then. Beautiful. There's nothing I could say there with that story, but beautiful. <laughs> but you spent 25 years in tournament fighting and these different battles and things, as I've mentioned. But you retired from that in 2013 to focus on teaching and consulting for theatrical combat and choreography and all that. And I obviously know Anthony does that as well with whips and swords and guns and all that stuff. But what is, from your perspective, the biggest thing that you see or try to, I guess, project i'm trying to think of what the word would be with whoever you're working with are you are they mostly beginners or are they people you can just jump right in and say all right let's do this to do, you know what i mean game plan what's most of the people i work with are younger folks they're just starting out in the okay. uh, and so i need to work them up and teach them the basics before we can start putting the choreog choreography together. However, I do get to work with experienced people as well, such as Anthony. And Anthony is my, one of my teachers. I've yeah. learned so much from him. And he teaches me theatrical, and I teach him martial. And uh, as we're working... When I get to work with people, if they have any kind of martial arts experience or dance experience, dancers are great because they understand their body. And we're able to really, once I teach them where the swords go, they can just flow through it. But the hardest part is making 
giving people the opportunity to understand how to move with the sword and not to make it choppy like they're cutting wood. Or pokey, pokey, pokey kind of deal. Right. Like if we look at the Princess Bride fight, there's thrusts and cuts. It makes it exciting. And if it's just one thing happening, it loses that excitement and it doesn't tell the story. Mm-hmm. Now, with your teaching, and I'm asking based on the knowledge that Anthony has taught me with, you know, just in conversations and when I was just recently out there, he was, you know, with the whip and all that stuff. And he has his own philosophies, obviously. I'm not telling you nothing. But with your teaching, no matter the discipline at your school, would you agree that there's a eight different outlets or directions that you would give in terms of fighting with the swords? And you know what I'm talking about with the... I do and I, I okay, you know where I'm going with this. This is the logo on my shirt. There's our eight. Oh, I love that. So this is my school logo. And there's our eight patterns. The same thing. Whether it's sword or feet or intention, I work on those patterns. Yes. So with that being said, when you are educating, whether it's the beginners or young actors or whatever the case is for students who come into the school, what would you say is step one? Is it self-control? Well, there's always needs to be self-control and safety. And that's right. no matter what discipline we're talking about. Or are we looking at footwork? What is the way we start off? Like take somebody who's never dealt with sword fighting as myself. Are we? Right. And obviously, like we're always looking at self-control and safety because it could be life or death, obviously. No matter if you're doing theatrical or whatnot, or we look at footwork, what do we, where do we begin with your teaching? When I start teaching, I start with guards, wards, positions that you put your sword, then footwork. Then we combine those. And my example that I like to use all the time for that is if you and I are in a fight, are you trying to hit me? What do you think? The answer is no. Because if you're trying to hit me, you're thinking about me. And you forgot about the most important person in the world. You. I am the most important person in the world. And if I'm trying to hit you, I've now made you the most important person in my world. Mm -hmm. So I just move through my guards, my positions, and my footwork changes the orientation between you and I, that's how the hit occurs. It's never because I'm trying to hit you. It's as if we were going to shake hands. If I'm on the other side of the room and I want to shake your hand, I don't stick out my hand and reach for you. Instead, I walk to you and then my hand comes up as if I was standing right next to you and then just shook your hand. So my arms always do the same thing. My feet change the orientation between 
me and the opponent, or in theatrical, me and the, my partner. And that's where those eight angles come in. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I know it's hard to demonstrate, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this without us doing, and hopefully I actually sent Stephen an email this morning and we'll discuss it off air, but it looks like I might be out there and I had an idea for a video demonstrating some of this at the school. But when I was out at the rancho and getting my whip lesson, and I, I would say it also falls under sword fighting as well, the philosophy anyway of how you do this. But with it, and you know where I'm going with the railroad of things. Yeah. Because you're right. also a student of Anthony's as well. So you understand the railroad of his teaching. One of the first things that stood out for me, because I haven't, I know a little enough to get myself by in combat. But when you're in that railroad philosophy there, and as you mentioned there about if you and me are going to be in combat or whatever, whether it be swords, hands, what, whatever we're doing here. For me, I'm looking, there's two things I'm looking at as whether we're approaching each other or whatever the case is, depending on what discipline we're in. I'm looking at your hands because you have the, where's your hand and your angle with, within the eight angles going, but also your feet, because as you mentioned there, your feet are going to be key in which way in which one of those angles you are going to be working on. Would you right. agree with that statement? I yeah. would. And the, the way I put it, you really only have two kinds of fights. You have a thrusting fight and a cutting fight. Okay. In a thrusting fight, you profile. So I can get the longest reach with my thrust. When I square up, I'm doing cutting targets or cutting actions. If I'm profiled and I want to throw my backhand, I turn my body, I square up. So the way I describe it, imagine you have headlights on the front of your hip sockets, just mm -hmm. like your car. You can't see what's in front of you until you have commit completely committed your car to that curve. I can't hit anything in front of me with my full energy until I've completely committed my center or my power in line with that target. So the railroads are as if I have headlights and I'm pointing my body at the target so I get all of my energy moving to the place I want it to go. Exactly. And with that being said, I believe it was Bruce Lee that said it. I can't think of the exact quote, but the thought behind the quote was because we're oh, and folks, I apologize. I'm all over the place here. I just want to make sure I cover all my bases. But the quote was talking about there are ribbons of truth and connections throughout all disciplines. 
Mm, Would you say, how would you describe that? Because obviously you've learned multiple disciplines and at the school, which by the way, Davenrich European Martial Arts School is one of the oldest historic European martial arts schools in the States. They focus on Italian and English martial arts systems, as well as things for theatrical violence as well. But going back to Bruce Lee's thought process about the ribbons of truth and connections, would you agree with that thought set or mindset, I should say, because there's, from what I know and things I have learned so far, there is different philosophies, but they all lead to the same goal, I would think, at the end of the line. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. So what I tell my guys here is we are a principle-based school, a concept-based school. If you break, if you look at all the martial arts throughout the world and you take away the techniques, the concepts and the principles are similar. And that's what I was trying to get to when I was asking the question. Thank you for wording it better. Once you understand the principles, you can use any tool because whatever's in my hands or my bare hands are my tools. This is my weapon. My principles and my concepts sharpen my weapon to allow me to use any tools. And as I develop my understanding of these concepts, we are all on the path. Imagine we're climbing up a mountain. Our goal is the apex of that mountain. We're all in different places on that path, but we're all on the same path. Because a martial art is a martial art is a martial art, as long as it's a true martial art and not, you know, uh, a chi master. Well, with that being said, a martial art is a martial art is a martial art, as you put it there. What would you say is beneficial to adding to one skill set? And the reason I ask that is there are some folks who go with this is what works. This is end all be all. Let's say Taekwondo or working with a whip or a particular sorts skill set or whatever the case is. But I am of a belief and this ain't about me folks that the more skill sets you have, there are more things from your back pocket you can pull from whether it's theater work or tournaments like you've done all over the world or whatever the case is. What are your thoughts are adding to one skill set? So. Two plus two is four. One plus three is four. Five minus one is four. There's lots of ways to get to the same answer. And no one way is the only way. A fight, regardless of what you're fighting with, is simply a physical conversation. If you and I are in a fight on the street, it's a conversation between you and I. If we're doing this theatrically, 
it's a conversation between you and I for the audience. But we have to understand the rules of the conversation and the situation that we're in. And having multiple systems or multiple styles that you understand, not necessarily that you're master at, that helps, but that's not required. But understanding the concepts of these systems means that you can answer a question. I, I teach and I work in a Socratic method, meaning if you and I are in a fight, I'm going to ask you a question, and that question is going to be an attack. And I need to see how you respond to my question to tell me what my next question is going to be, to tell me how you respond to that for what my next question is going to be, until one of us is unable to give a correct answer. And there's the end of our fight. And I would say with that is, in the way you describe that, would be a physical form of the mental chess game. And what I mean by that is, as you just described, depending on the question you throw at me, whether it's a right jab or it's a thrust with your sword or whatever discipline we're going with, it's both physical, but yet it's that mental chess game that you're talking about and doing a dance that we do so and just like in chess if you are in the you're too late you have to be in the and then exactly i found when i was doing my homework on you and getting prepped for this and obviously from our conversations through text and stuff and you were actually just in a trip which i want to jump into in a second what countries did you fight in i said you've been over in europe and all over the place and well you know what i'll start there where are some of the countries you've uh participated in tournaments and fought and different things at because and i'll we'll go from there i have fought in u.s canada mexico england scotland wells france Australia, and New Zealand. And I've traveled to close to 20, 20, 25 countries. Nice. Now, the reason I said we'll continue on that thought process is because I don't want to hit you with 75 questions at once. Now, in a previous conversation that I heard was listened to just to get a vibe for you, because... Like I said, our exchanges were either text or email and such. So I just wanted to get a good vibe on you, which obviously I got now. But with that other conversation I was listening to. But you said, and I found it entertaining, that you met your wife, and I'm throwing back to the beginning of this, at a Renaissance fair. And you said you retired for six months for you guys to travel over Europe. Was this right. uh, for different tournaments and Renaissance fairs when you guys went overseas? What's the story behind that? Because I found that interesting. 
So I actually met my wife at a Renaissance fair and chased her for five years until finally I guess she got tired and said, okay. Uh, then we got married at a Renaissance fair and went over to have our honeymoon in Scotland and met several people there. Then in 1999, we got married in 98, did two weeks in Scotland for our honeymoon. And then in 1999, we retired. We figured we'd take our time when we're young and able to climb all the castle walls and do all of that to go explore and then come back and work and start a family. And so we went over there for six months, June to December. We spent five months in the UK traveling between Scotland, England, and France, or Scotland, England, and Wales. Uh, I, I would compete in every tournament I could get into and every reenactment I could do. And at the same time, I was studying with a maestro there in Edinburgh because I went over to find a master. Would that I be want, uh, Paul McDonald? That is Paul McDonald. And I went over to hone my skills with somebody who I knew was better than me. And we spent five months there in the UK. And then we spent a month in Europe, traveling through Northern Europe. When we got there, we bought a car. And so for six months, we just drove anywhere we wanted to go. Now, since you mentioned your maestro there, Paul McDonald, he, which for our listeners who may not be familiar, he trained you in working with working with lighter weapons, whether it be the dagger and the Sapa de Filippo, which I know you incorporate and everything else like that. Would you say that was probably some of the most interesting training you've received during your career of doing this since 89? There was some really fun and educational fights. I got to train, fight with him in a castle courtyard. And I remember at one time I was, we were fighting with side swords, Spada de Filo. I threw a cut at him. He countercut my sword. And it just knocked it right out of my hand. So I grabbed the blade, the sword by the blade and swung it at his head just to make him jump back so that I could get my sword again. And just learning how to deal with things in the moment. Uh, in that same fight, we were moving in the castle courtyard and I stepped in between two cobblestones. So my foot went to an angle. But because I had been working so much on footwork, I was able to maintain my balance until I could get out of that bad position. So we would do those kinds of fights. And then in reenactments, when I wasn't with him, but I was then training myself and fighting with anybody I could, I got to do a fighting retreat along the parapets of a castle wall in Wells, which is a whole different kind of fight when you're throwing up a barricade fighting from behind the barricade with arquebus muskets firing over your shoulder. The side of my helmet was black from the gunpowder. 
Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Now, the final thing I want to bring up, and I found this interesting, because you mentioned earlier about growing up reading sci-fi and things like that. But as you grew up, I don't know how current it was, but I think it's part of our maturity that we grow. It's you become interested in something that I am always educating myself in, and that being history. And that's what my background's in, educational-wise. So what led you to history? Because there's a lot of, I'm not into sci-fi per se, as far as reading and literature goes, but I know enough to know there's a lot of similarities there. When you read the stories and everything, you go back in history, but it was cool that your fascination of history grew because you've done things for the history channel such as modern marvels and you've done some work with a micro on cnn somebody's right. gonna do it which if i have the episodes i'm gonna put links to those as well both of those episodes adam savage on savage builds but what got me into it was actually not medieval history when i was in high school it was revolutionary war history i was fascinated by the the characters like rogers rangers uh francis marion the swamp fox and just how they made how they made it so bad for the british soldiers that they were able to win a battle that they should not have won uh then i went into the army with the idea that I was going into the infantry so I could be part of the brigade in Washington that does the Revolutionary War reenactment for the governmental officials. After I raised my hand and said, I do, they said, we're sorry, you're an inch and a half too short. And so I was the infantry and uh, actually busted up my knee in the army. So I got a early medical discharge honorable discharge and after healing up i got into the renaissance fair which then made gave me the desire to study more medieval history as opposed to 18th century american history fascinating and i almost forgot and i want to bring this up obviously in that previous conversation I listened that you were a part of, you talked about the Renaissance team that you were a part of broke up for whatever reason. And that led to you becoming a firefighter, which kudos to that because not many folks would, and there's more than just fires that they, firefighters fight you guys go to car accidents and you know different things that go on in the real world but what said made you say hey you know what i want to try that so i had spent six seven years fighting in armor with these guys these were all my best friends and when the company broke up i wasn't seeing them two times a week and i missed that community So 
I looked at what other jobs had that kind of community, and it was police and fire. And Makes I looked sense. at the two jobs and de- tried to decide what did I like about both of them and what did I not like. And after doing my research into it, I found that I liked the firefighters because they were they were always the good guys. They were the ones that would go in and pull you out of a fire, take you out of a car, anything like that. And so I could get my adrenaline that I lost from fighting and have that community of tight-knit brother and sisterhood. That It's a special bond there with folks like that. It really is. And that's what I had in the Army, too. It's a it's its own thing that until you've been in a some kind of situation with other people that are in like that, it's hard to understand just how tight that grouping can be. Yeah, it's a you know when folks walk in a same path, whether it be police officers, firefighters, folks in the military, whatever the case is, because I know I've had conversations with friends who were been in some of them or actually multiple phases of them. I know guys who went into the military, then went became police officers or whatever the case is. And we would sit and have a drink, you know, because I like to sip on my whiskey or have a beer with them and whatnot. And I guess what it's what led to what I do now. And just by wanting to ask questions and curiosity and everything. And obviously these folks wouldn't be together because some of them don't know each other. I mean, some do, but they all had a common answer with a lot of the things I would ask. You would not understand unless you lived it. You're not fighting for yourself. You're fighting for your buddy next to you. Yeah. Uh, When I was in the fire, I remember going into a house that was on fire. I was second man on the hose, and number three behind me fell through the floor because it was damaged from the fire. You know, when you are relying on other people for your safety, it develops a special bond. And after the uh, company broke up and I went into fire and then as I'm working, I moved up to the Bay Area to get married and I was still training and I was complaining to my wife about, you know, I lost all my best friends because I was didn't have my company that I fought with anymore. I wasn't actively working in the fire department. And basically, she said, you don't have your friends that you want? Well, stop whining and make them. And there's the origins of the school. I needed my friends. And they didn't exist, so I made it. So you mentioned your wife said, if you don't have those friends, go get them. So... Did you reconnect with folks from the original company when you started the school? 
I actually did not because everybody had moved on and they knew that I was doing this, but they were doing their own things. And so my first student is a man named Jonathan. He was the 14-year-old son of a friend of my wife's. He wanted to learn to fight, and he brought in one of his friends. And so this was all new people. And with the young men that came in, Jonathan has gone on to become a a teacher of martial arts in Los Angeles and has been inducted into the National and International Martial Arts Hall of Fame. And the friend that he brought with him, John, is now my floor manager, and I'm training him to take over the school so that even when I'm gone, our tradition continues on. But in the other conversation that I was doing a little listening to and just getting that vibe from you, as I mentioned earlier, you mentioned that how many can say that folks were at your original wedding, but then at the renewal ceremony, and I say this is unique because of everything was done at a Renaissance fair, and it goes back to what I was saying as far as the community is big, but it's also a small community because of the interactions of folks. Right. I misunderstood the question. Yes. Uh, I have stayed in touch with people from that original company. Uh, I am still very good friends with the very the person that I had my very first armored fight with, him and his whole family. Uh, a man who just celebrated his 20th anniversary. I was his first fight when he turned 18. And so we've been able to maintain this communication and this friendship. And the biggest thing that's helped us do that is social media. Because we're not able to go to the same events like we used to be able to. And final question for you before I give the floor to you to talk about the school and such. And I was thinking about this. You've been in the military, the fire department, and this style of community. And they are all similar. That There's a special bond between everybody. But I would assume they are different bonds, too. So what would be the biggest differences within the tight-knit community? But are there similarities? I would have to say some of the biggest differences are what we're running into and why. In the fire department, we would, I, I was just a full disclosure, I was not a full-time fire department uh, firefighter. I was what's called paid call, which means I was just on call 24 hours if I was needed. And in the fire department, 
full-time lives together for two to three days a week and are on call all the time. In the armored company, we would get together once a month, twice a month to eat, drink, and fight. And then we'd go to Renaissance fairs and spend three days, two and a half, three days together, eating, drinking, and fighting. And so I think the biggest difference is that in the sword fighting community, our goal was to eat, drink, and fight, as opposed to the fire department, which was to be professional and go in and save people. So we were doing it for two different reasons. And it showed up in more of our community and our relationship so that in the armored company, it would be more like being in the military where you're living in the barracks and you're fighting and drinking with these guys all the time. And you still maintain that community even after you move out of the barracks, but it's not quite the same. And that would be the difference between the sword fighting community and the firefighting, I think. Hey, you mentioned a story earlier in the episode of talking about at least the firefighting side of things. And you mentioned about being, like say, on calls the second in command. And when I say that in command, it's like when you would go in to try to shut the fire down on the hose. You know, you had your lead guy, you'd be right there and, you know, whatnot. You'd have people along the way with the hose because they're big and just everything that goes into that. I don't need to really describe that. And obviously you want to look out for your brother or sister, whoever it is on the line with you, whatever the involvement is. You mentioned about somebody falling through, like you're looking out for each other. Was that something that actually happened? Yes. Uh, we were, we had, a, fires are alive. And I swear we had this fire that was playing hide and seek with us. We would go in, put it out, come back out, look at the house and it was somewhere else. And we kept going in. And one of the times we went in and, uh, as I said, I was second guy on the hose. The guy behind me hit a weak spot on the floor from the fire, and one of his legs went through all the way to the hip. So he didn't fall all the way through the floor, but he dropped down to the hip. And just to, just to clarify, I was not second in command. I was a yeah. nobody firefighter. I was just second man on the hose. You had nozzle man, second man, third man. I was second man. Now, was this person able to get out, or did you have to stop, help pull him out? Because like oh. you said, he was up to his head. Yeah, we had to stop and pull him out. And, so. you know, had a, one of those nervous laughs, because it could have gone horribly wrong, yeah. and then right back into the fire. Yeah, because that would be... Um, pretty good at multitasking but that just seems like when you're in a life or death situation like that 
depending on, and because obviously each situation is different, but it is a life or death situation when you're dealing with fires and such going into a situation like that. It just seems like, yeah, you know what I mean? Focusing on the fire, but making sure everybody else is cool too. And that's exactly what it was that was such a draw in the sword fighting community as well. It would only take one mistake for somebody to die. In my career, I've come close to killing people with the sword three times through accidents. And the first time was on the field in this armored company. I was fighting the guy. He attacked me. I defended. I stepped forward and I punched him inside of the head. And I hit him just right that his helmet strap broke and his helmet came off his head as I was swinging down at the top of his head with everything I had. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at a bare face. I was able to move my sword off to the side and just hit him on the shoulder, not the head. So I didn't kill him. I laid my sword down and walked off the field. I didn't touch it the rest of the day. In fact, I didn't even take it off the field. Somebody else had to go get it. Because it I was that close to killing one of my friends. And it's that life or death situation that makes such a tight-knit community. Now, with that being said, because I heard that story in the other interview but i'm curious to know when you have because when you do the renaissance fairs and the different things and you have a close call like that when you're not looking to really harm somebody when it's not a real life or death fight how did you get yourself together again to Okay, I'm going to go into the next training session, to the next event. To you know what I'm saying? To want to still continue in the field, right? Without letting that eat into my exactly and your mental health and all that stuff. Honestly, it would have been an entirely different answer if I had split his head open. Uh, But what I learned from that is that the entire body is hooked together. So the reason I didn't hit him is as I was swinging down, I was able to manipulate my shoulder and that put my sword in a different place. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started to understand that it's not just my arm that's doing it. And I could see the coalition of the body. And I had a new path to follow to see how the body works together. And it's now something that I've spent the last decade and a half really focusing on is the physical communication of the body and how lifting your big toe up will adjust everything else. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were discussing earlier with whether it be the railroad or, as you mentioned, the headlights of your hips and our footwork and just everything how everything is so connected can um, it's a matter of inches on how we do things. Uh, I like to tell people here that Conan lied to us. 
This is not big, dumb thugs swinging tire irons at each other. This truly is a game of millimeters. And when you learn to control yourself to that fine of a point, you're able to develop that control so it envelops the area and the people around you. Mm -hmm. And I think I mentioned it to you, but I know like me and Anthony and other people have had this conversation in terms of some people like to play checkers, but in stuff like this, it's playing chess because where you're, you were three to four steps ahead mentally, no matter the discipline you're involved with, because of the inches and millimeters that you're playing with. Yes. And not only do you have to be motion moves ahead, you also have to be flexible enough to not be tied to them and let something go because it's no longer any good to you. And that's a hard thing to do, to not be focused on your own end game that when there's another bit of information or action thrown in that you can shift on the fly Mm -hmm. so the school as we mentioned is based in san jose and if folks wish to check out the school and i'll post links etc how would you describe it best for the school To get to us or to find us online? Just if they want to learn about you or the seminars and just. So the best way to find us is through our website, which is swordfightingschool.com. I kept swordfighting school with all of the social media. So Instagram slash swordfighting school, youtube.com slash swordfighting school. Facebook is the only one that's not sword fighting school. That one is the name of the school, Davenrich European Martial Arts School. Uh, So if you look up sword fighting school, one word, you'll often come, you'll find us. And it's our Compass Bloom logo that you're looking for. Which is the eight different... You know, right. So different points of direction. Well, there is our beautiful. Compass. Yes. So I know we were talking about a potential visit and stuff, and I will talk to you about that off air. But Mr. Fick, thank you so much for the time, and we will be discussing some video and different aspects we've been talking about doing at the school. It has been my pleasure. And I'm so glad that Anthony introduced us. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said earlier in this, he does not make recommendations easily in connecting people. He's a, uh, he's a professional who I'm proud to call my friend and my teacher. Yes. A man of many hats. Yes, sir. It's been a real pleasure. 
Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Anthony DeLongis, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.